Matthew chapter 4. Now, we have been working our way through Matthew's gospel, and um, we left off last week with Jesus choosing some of his disciples, and you recall it was Peter and Andrew and James and John, and the reason that those four were highlighted is because those are going to be, of the 12 apostles, those are going to be the four primary guys. And uh, not all the disciples have been chosen. Matthew, who writes this book, isn't actually part of the story until Matthew chapter 9. And so uh, we're going to look at something today, and, and you have to know that what we're going to look at today is, is a very difficult subject. And it's difficult for me, it might be a breeze for you, but, it, but it's something that's really caused me to, to evaluate, and we'll see as we, as we travel through. But uh, last week, we, we, again, we were, we, Jesus had chosen some of his disciples. We're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And uh, it says, as Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And uh, you notice as he was going throughout all the Galilee, and I just wanted to show once again a map. I grew up in the church, and so they would talk about all of these, these places, and they, they uh, you know, never made any sense to me. But Israel, ancient Israel is divided into three sections. So down in the very bottom, to the arrow there, there's Judea, and you have Jerusalem and Bethlehem down at the bottom in the, the Dead Sea. In the middle of Israel, which is a whole different conversation, is the area known as Samaria, which is where the Samaritans lived. And that, again, it's another conversation for another day. But at the very top, uh, there's this area, this region that's called the Galilee. And so you have these towns like Capernaum that's circled in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and there is the Sea of Galilee, which is a large freshwater lake. So Jesus is, at this point, traveling around the northern area of Israel, and uh, he is, he's teaching, he's preaching, and um, one of the things that says is healing every, every disease. And uh, the reason that's important is part of his ministry is to show that he had the authority to overcome the results of what you and I would call the fall. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, sin came into the earth, disease and all of that, he has the ability to reverse that. We pick it up in verse 24, and it says, news about him spread through all Syria, and they brought, him, uh, they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering, various diseases, pains, demoniacs, I'll come back to that, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So from the entire country, uh, they, they were, and even from Syria, so more than 100 miles away. So uh, one of the things that would be important there is just to highlight, it says that, that he was dealing with demoniacs. That tells us that, first of all, some illnesses that Jesus healed were physical in nature. You and I live in a fallen world, things break down, people get sick, it's just part of being in, in a fallen world. However, there are some times, and Jesus is going to deal with this a great deal, where sometimes the problem has a spiritual source. And so Jesus would be casting out demons. And we'll talk about that as we travel, travel through. But he did believe in that. He experienced that. And he talks about that. So it, it's, it's a very, very real thing. And we'll talk about that when we come to it. Now, what's important is, as I've read that, uh, when, when you read in the Bible and I say, hey, turn to chapter 4, verse 23, 24, we all do that. But we, we, um, we, we miss out on something that, that um, is very important. When the Bible was written, it's not like Matthew wrote, he says, this will be verse 1, verse 2, this will be chapter. That was put in over a thousand years after the Bible was compiled. 
and that it was put in so I could say turn to chapter 4 and chapter 5 and we'd all go to the same place. But it wasn't written that way. So chapter 5 is just simply the next line in the continuation. There's a break in your Bible and my Bible, but there's no break in the original manuscript. It just continues on. So verses 1 and 2, again, this, this story continues. Crowds are coming and uh, very popular at this point. Ver- chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and I've underlined the word mountain. He sat down, and his disciples, underlined disciples, came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, teach them saying. So there's a couple of things in this as we as we travel through. First of all, this is going to be the beginning of what you and I commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. That begins here in chapter 5. Jesus sees the crowd, very popular at this point. Thousands are coming, healings, uh, teaching is going on. And so in the midst of this, he goes up onto the mountain and he sits down. We, we, we underline that he sat down. In those days, a rabbi, a teacher... When you were about to teach, you would sit down. And if you had disciples, the disciples would sit down around you and everybody else would stand. In our, in our culture, it's very different. You get to sit down, I have to stand up here. So, so, but they did it right back in the Bible, I can tell you that. So, but the, the part that, that um, we, we need to get to understand what's taking place here is that there in verse 1, it says, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up onto the mountain and sat down. And then it says his disciples followed him. He has a few disciples at this point. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying. So grammatically, what's very important here is that that Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples. Now, what we're going to find is as he goes up and the disciples sit around him and he speaks to them, the crowd is also going to come up and they're going to be listening in to what Jesus has to say. But Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. Uh, The next verse on your outline, when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to conclude by saying this, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teachings. But what we find is that Jesus goes up, sits down, disciples come to him, and he teaches them. So by and large, as we travel through the gospel, we're going to find part of Jesus' methodology. And uh, you go ahead and write this down. Jesus will teach the disciples as the crowd listens in. So this is one of those times where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the crowd is listening in. This is very different than what we would find practiced in modern day church life, where, where typically it's very common to speak to the crowd and uh, the disciples, those who are a little bit more committed, they kind of listen in. But Jesus was very different. He would teach the disciples, the crowd would surround, and the reason for doing that as he was teaching the disciples, the crowd would say, I, I want that. And so that would cause them to come closer and closer to becoming a disciple. So go ahead and, and uh, write this down. Jesus' objective is to make disciples from the crowd. That's why he teaches the disciples in the presence of the crowd, and he doesn't reverse that, typically. typically. So what we're going to find is the Sermon on the Mount is going to be a discipleship teaching. And uh, in the Bible, in, in the Gospels, we're going to find that around Jesus, for those who are believers, there's commonly three groups. There's the 12, which would be called apostles. Then there's going to be a number of people who are disciples. Sometime, at one time there's going to be 120, another time there's going to be 70. It's a much larger crowd. 
And then there's going to be the crowd who are believers, they love Jesus, but they don't have the commitment that, say, the disciples would have. And so when Jesus speaks to each group, he's going to speak very, very differently. So one day Jesus is speaking to the crowd. They love Jesus, they believe in Jesus. And so I want you to just write this down on your outline. His promise to believers, his promise to believers. And it says, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. And here's what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, When you come to Jesus, you come to him as a believer, you are born again, you're saved, you have eternity, you have heaven, you have the Holy Spirit. And his promise to you is that there is a rest, you know, forgiveness, it's all there. But other times he speaks to disciples. So go ahead and write down promise to disciples. And again, when he speaks to disciples, it's going to be very, very different. Uh, Here in uh, Luke's gospel, it says this, I put on your outline, the 72 returned. So at this point, there's 72 disciples returned with joy and said, Lord, even the, de- the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I have given you authority, and I've underlined the word authority, to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. What you notice is that's a very different promise than what he gives to the crowd who's following him. One group gets the promise, come to me, you're weary, heavy laden, I give you rest. This one is, this group gets, I give you authority. So what's, what's the difference? Well, one group, it's, it's, it's about maturity, it's about commitment to him. Uh, as disciples, this group that's come back to Jesus, they weren't out doing their thing, they were involved in doing his thing. They were on his mission. So they weren't casually following him at this point. They're obeying him, stepping out, and, and doing what he's called them to do. In church life today, for, for many believers, many are, are frustrated because they, they follow casually and, and, and yet they want the promise that God gives to the committed, the disciples. And uh, they're, they're typically frustrated with the results. So a, a disciple is somebody we're going to find who Jesus is the priority. Not just the highest sentiment, but the priority. So for, for a disciple, if they're serving the Lord in some capacity and their schedule gets busy, the first thing that they do is not to unload their service to the Lord because he is the highest priority. Uh, as, a, as a disciple, if they're, they're putting God first, participating in God with what he's doing financially, and they come to a crunch, the first thing that they give up is not what they're, they're uh, participating with with God because he's the highest priority. Whereas not everybody does that. You know, for some people, Jesus is the highest sentiment, but when their back is against the wall, he's not the highest priority. A disciple is somebody who Jesus is the highest priority. So Jesus is speaking to disciples here today. Now, for those who would say, I would love to have those promises operating in my life, how do I become a disciple? Well, one day in Mark's gospel there in your outline, it says he summoned the multitude and his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone wishes, and I've underlined that, to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The crowd was there with Jesus. They, they believed in him. They loved him. And, and that's, why he, that, that's why they were there. And so the invitation is, if anyone wishes, so, so apparently anyone who decides to become one of his disciples 
can, can become one of his disciples. But it will involve denying ourself for his purpose. Uh, a disciple always puts God's purpose above their own purpose. See, for, for many people, even within the church, it's never about denying myself for God's purpose. It's about Jesus coming alongside of me to help me accomplish my goals, my dreams, my desires. But it's not about me denying myself to follow him. And so there is a difference. There are believers and certainly saved and they love Jesus and he's a, a sentiment, a highest sentiment. But for a disciple, Jesus is the highest priority. So there's different promises, different promises. Now, as our story begins today, as we've just read, Jesus is very popular. People are coming in from everywhere. There's crowds and there's miracles. And uh, it's in the midst of all of this that Jesus stops. He calls his disciples to come away. They, they, they get on the mountain and he begins to speak to them. And, and he begins to speak to them about what it means to be a disciple. Because if he's not careful, they can be greatly misled. Now one other thing I need to say before we jump into this, he's speaking to disciples so their salvation is settled. And you want to write that down. Because as you read this, you'll think, oh boy, could, could I lose my salvation here? That's not the point. The point is he's speaking to disciples about what it means to be a disciple, not what it means to be saved. Now, as we get into this, we're going to go through the first 12 verses of, of this chapter. And you could turn every verse into a sermon. I'm not going to do that today. We're going to just kind of move through. And uh, understanding that this is written to disciples will make the passage clear for us. Speaking to disciples and uh, saying, this is what it means to be my disciple. The part that we're going to get into is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. Now, um, we call them the Beatitudes. We're going to find that Jesus is the example of all the Beatitudes. All the Beatitudes that we see, he's, he's, he embodies that. Uh, we're going to see that this is the standard for what it means to be a disciple of his, a committed follower. And it's also going to be a great way for each of us to look at ourselves and see where am I really in, in all of this? And I have to tell you that if, as I grade myself, uh, there's some things I do, oh, I'm okay, and some places I go, I need a little work there. And uh, so hopefully I'm not alone. So if, if, if and uh, so, you know, maybe I am. But anyways, so we have the Beatitudes. Now, I think it's important to know that the reason that we call these the Beatitudes, the, the word, uh, you'll see the first several verses there in chapter 5 all the, the, the verses begin with the word blessed. Is that pretty much how your Bible says it? Blessed is this, and, and, and then it says four. Okay. So the Beatitudes, the reason that we call them the Beatitudes, Beatitude just means blessing or blessed. And it comes from the Latin. And I put that there on your outline, beatudo and beatus, and it just means blessed. And the reason that we call it the Beatitudes is because for over a thousand years, the only Bible that anybody had was written in Latin. So that was called the Beatitudes. And so when they translated it into English, they just kept calling it what they've been calling it for a thousand years. The Greek word I've put there on your outline, makarios, means supremely blessed, by extension fortunate or well off. So the Beatitudes are simply the blessings, the blessings. Now here's what you need to know about these blessings. And you want to write this down. There on your outline, the word blessed or blessings, uh, a state of existence in relationship to God in which a person is blessed from God's, 
perspective, God's perspective, even when he or she doesn't feel happy or isn't presently experiencing good fortune, presently experiencing good fortune. And we're going to find that that for some of these, it's going to be very difficult, and the benefit is going to be something that's realized later. In the Beatitudes, it's going to say something like, blessed are, and then it will say, for they shall, and uh, the word for there just means because, so because of. Uh, uh, One translation there in your outline, verse 5, would say this, those who are humble are happy because the earth will belong to them. So when your Bible says for, it just means because. So here's, here's the blessing, and here's why, the, the because. The Beatitudes we're going to find as we get into these are going to be very different values than what the world around us would hold to. And we're also going to find that the Beatitudes are a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, again, are the standard for what it means to be a disciple, and once again, the Beatitudes are something that we can look at and test ourselves to see how we are doing. Uh, is there an area that we need to grow? So Jesus begins, crowd is there, very, very popular, and he turns to his disciples. So if you were Jesus, what's the very first thing that you would say to your disciples in the midst of all of this popularity and all of this going on? Well, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, when, when we say poor in spirit, what do we mean by that? The, the best definition that I've been able to find for what it means to be poor in spirit actually comes from the New American Standard Bible um, um, from its notes, which if you have a, a New American Standard Study Bible, it'll have notes in the side. And it says, this is what this means. And I put that there on your outline. Poor in spirit just means those who are not spiritually arrogant. Go ahead and underline that. Does everybody see that? So the first thing that Jesus would want to convey to his disciples, and you want to write this down, blessed are those who are not spiritually arrogant. As you travel through the Gospels, you'll find that there was a a number of religious groups that that we'll we'll come in contact with. And spiritual arrogance was pervasive. The the sense of, I have something, you don't have it. If you were spiritual like me, then... And and Jesus says, if you're going to be one of my disciples, then the first thing that has to go out is any sense of spiritual arrogance. The reason that disciples are not to be spiritually arrogant is because as a disciple... When you look at yourself, you realize you didn't really bring anything to the table. If God is doing anything in your life, if he's blessed you in any way, it's because of what he has done, not because of something inherent inside of you. So if you're going to be a disciple, he would say of mine, you cannot be spiritually arrogant. I love how Paul says it, and this has become a verse that we we use as an operating verse for how we do ministry here at Calvary. It just says, not that we lord it over your faith, it's not our role, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And, and, I, and I love that. If we can be a help to come alongside to help you and your faith, that's great. 
but we don't have anything that anybody else doesn't have as, as far as believers are concerned. And uh, so there's never to be this attitude that, you know, if you were spiritual like me, and that's we just, there's no spiritual arrogance as the idea to be a disciple of his. And then he says there in verse three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Certainly they're experiencing that now being in Jesus's presence, but really the great fulfillment of that comes in the future. And that'll be important for, for our study. Well, that's the starting point. Then the next thing he says, verse four, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now remember, he's speaking to disciples. So what does he mean, those who mourn? Well, Jesus also is going to be the great example of this. A a disciple mourns when they look out and they see the decisions, the the, the terrible decisions that people have made and it's brought great pain into their lives and and the lives of their family and their heart breaks as they see the condition and they realize that that, that there are people who are hurting and, and there are people who are spiritually blind. One of the things that, that hits me in this is, is that it's very common, um, it's very common in the world, and, and sadly, even among some Christian circles, when those who are spiritually blinded, the Bible says that the God of this world has blinded the minds so that they can't see. And so because they can't see, they take certain positions that would be very contrary to the Lord. And, and there is within Christian news and places like, like that, this sense of wanting to bash and attack uh, those who are spiritually blinded at, at the present time. But the heart of Jesus always breaks for those who are spiritually blind. So a disciple is somebody who mourns over that condition because they realize the outcome. Not seeking to attack, but to mourn over that. And he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So that's the type of situation when God steps in to give comfort to those who mourn as they see the condition of the world. Verse 5, it says, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Some of your Bibles say blessed are the humble and some of your Bibles say, blessed are the meek. How many of your Bibles say, blessed are the meek? Good, that's the best word. Meek is the best word. Um, my, my Bible says gentle, but meek is, is the best word there. So I put that there in your outline. Blessed are the meek. That is a word that was used in, in the Greek language to describe if you had a very, very powerful horse. And uh, you were able to break that horse so that you could ride it or you could lead it. it. It never took away the power of the horse. It's just that now the horse's power was now power, uh, power under control. So meekness is defined in the Bible, and you'll find this throughout. Go ahead and write this down. It just means to be power under control. Meekness is not weakness. It's just not using the power. It's always a, a power that's under control. Jesus is the example of what it means to be meek. Incredible power, the power that created the universe. And yet Jesus would say there on your outline in Matthew's gospel in chapter 11, Jesus would say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. Jesus is, is the example 
of what it means to have power under control. You'll remember the story. It was the night that they come to arrest Jesus. It says there were 600, 600 men, clubs, swords, lanterns. And so they, they come to arrest Jesus and Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And when he says, I am, all 600 fall down backwards. That's the kind of power that he had. Ultimately, he allows them to arrest him. He says, I could call my heavenly father. You have no idea how many angels could show up. Meekness is using whatever power that God has given you under his control for his purpose. So as a disciple, you're never to use your power, authority, your position in any way that's not under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's always for God's purpose. That's what it means to be a disciple. Well, going on from there, verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I don't typically do this, but when I read this, I felt it was important to, to uh, read from a commentary. This is Guzik's commentary. And on this verse, when it talks about, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, begins by saying, this describes a profound hunger that cannot be satisfied by a snack. This is a longing that endures and is never completely satisfied this side of eternity. This passion is real, just like hunger and thirst are real. This passion is natural, just like hunger and thirst are natural in a healthy person. This passion is intense, just like hunger and thirst, uh, just like hunger and thirst can be. This passion is painful, just like real hunger and real thirst can cause pain. This passion is a, passion is a driving force, uh, just like the hunger and thirst can drive a man. This passion is a sign of health, just like hunger and thirst show health. You know, it's an interesting thing that when a person loses the desire, uh, there's no hunger and there's no thirst, uh, that's always a sign that something's wrong with them physically. Spiritually speaking, it's also a sign of spiritual health. So I want you to go ahead and write that down. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a sign of spiritual health. It's a sign of spiritual health. Now, it's not that Christians enforce righteousness because you, you can't really do that. But you hunger for righteousness because you see in the world what unrighteousness does, what it does in someone's life, what it does in a family, what it does in a country, what it does in the world. So, so you, you have this hunger and this passion for righteousness. That's what it means to be a disciple. Yet, it's very common um, within church and Christian circles we, are all hung, we all hunger for something. So it's very common uh, to see seminars and conferences that satisfy the hunger for things like success, wealth, power, comfort, happiness. But Jesus says, but if you're going to be a disciple of mine, 
your hunger and thirst is going to be for righteousness. If those things come along, that's fine. But this is your passion. This is what it means to be a disciple. That makes sense? Verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is a, a central theme in the Bible. One of my favorite verses from the Old Testament says it's very easy to follow the Lord. It's just this there in your outline. He's shown you, O Lord, he's shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and I've underlined that, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, mercy is not getting what you deserved. And in this beatitude, and you want to write this down, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what he's saying, you want to write this down, the one expected to show mercy is the one who has received mercy. As a disciple, you realize what it is that you've been saved from, the the mercy that God has given you. There is going to come a point in your life as a Christian where somebody is going to hurt you deeply. And it's in that time that you decide, am I a disciple? Will I give mercy? Because I have received mercy. It's also very interesting is the guy who's teaching this, Jesus, on the cross to those who are nailing him on the cross and those who are participating in all of that, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As disciples of his, it's not about getting even or getting back. It's about giving mercy. And that, that mercy isn't something that's always earned. Uh, it's just something that you give because you're his disciple. Verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I've underlined pure in heart. Pure in heart, for they shall see God. And, and the point that he's making here, and you want to write this down, it's purity of the heart that produces external purity. You see, in, in that day, it was very common, and we'll see as we travel through the gospel, there were a number of religious leaders, and they focused in on looking pure on the outside. So Jesus would confront them, and he would say this, and I put it on your outline. He says, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That was then. They looked righteous on the outside, but inside they were a mess. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can begin, and if you come from a church background like I come from, uh, your spiritual walk with the Lord was always evaluated by a list of external things that you keep. You do this, you don't do this, and you have this whole list. You could be a mess inside, nobody cared. But if you kept all of this, you're considered spiritual. Jesus says, no, it's the pure in heart. See, a disciple is somebody who wants to have his heart pure before God at all times. It's a driving passion. I want to be right with God. Verse 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And uh, you go, what is a peacemaker? Well, remember, this is given to disciples. Disciples. So I I wanted to share with you two verses, and we'll put them on the screen what does it mean to be a peacemaker? In Corinthians, Paul would say, 
God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God in Christ was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, you and I, as we are born into this world, we begin not at peace with God. And so for a disciple, and the Bible says that Jesus was reconciling the world, and now he's given that to us. So our role, a driving passion of a disciple, wherever we work, whatever we do, is to see people come into a relationship with God where they are at peace with God. And, and, and that means inviting Jesus in, forgiveness of sins, new life, eternal life. That's the driving passion. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. By the way, one other verse very quickly. It says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the, uh, the readiness given by, and the part that I wanted to focus in on is the gospel of peace. Being a peacemaker has everything to do with the gospel. It has to do with reconciling people with the Lord. A disciple's passion is to have people come into a relationship with their heavenly father through Jesus. So at this time, Jesus is giving these beatitudes and saying, this is what it means to be a follower of mine. But also keep in mind that as he's saying this, there's thousands of people. The crowd is there. They're more popular. It's, it, you know, it's coming in and ministry and all types of things are happening. And then Jesus says something else. And I put there on your outline how the world receives Jesus and the disciples. And as Jesus teaches this, uh, this is going to be the, the disciples are going to say, how, how could this ever happen? Everybody loves us. Uh, verse 10, he says, blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the reward is in the future. Uh, persecuted for the sake of righteousness, not because they did something stupid, they did the right thing, and they're persecuted for that. But then in verse 11, he says, blessed are you, and you want to underline the word you, and the very next word is the word when. Does everybody have that? Blessed are you when. And the part that you want to get is it doesn't say you if. It says you when. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Do you notice that the reward's not right now? It's in heaven. Uh, your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love that because uh, he's saying this is the reality of how it's going to be if you are my disciple. Not everybody's going to like it or like you. Paul would say it a little bit differently. Paul would say, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I used to say, you know, you go to work and you go, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist. Everybody goes, oh, that's great. You're a Buddhist, you know, or I'm, 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 I'm a, you know, whatever, you know, Hindu, whatever. Oh, that's great. But you walk in and you say, hey, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And all of a sudden, everybody's angry. Doesn't happen so much where I work, but it does happen <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but have you experienced that? You know, it, it, it's, there's a hostility towards Jesus. And so it's going to get very difficult for the disciples because the popularity is going to go away. The crowds are going to go away. And uh, one day as the crowds are leaving because Jesus isn't telling everybody what they want to hear, uh, Jesus is going to turn to his disciples. And there in your outline it says, 
Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I, I think part of being a disciple and the reason these disciples are willing to go through that time of difficulty is that they've come to the place in their walk with the Lord where they realize there really is nowhere else to go. That he and he alone is truth. He is the Christ, the way, the truth, the life. And they look and say, there's really nowhere to go. So come what may, we're in. We're in. It's a completely different level of commitment than the rest of the crowd. I believe, as we shared a few moments ago, that the calling, the invitation to become a disciple is given to everyone. It, it's great to be saved. It's, you're born again, you're saved, you're going to heaven, you have the Holy Spirit. But the real excitement in your Christian faith is when you step up and you say, I'm going to be fully in. And uh, I'm, I, I'm in because it's truth. And when you do that, you notice that all of a sudden inside your life, things begin to change. They, they change because your, your, your level of commitment to him goes up and his commitment to you seems to manifest in, in a greater way. I think the Beatitudes are such a, a great test to evaluate where we are in our walk with the Lord. And I can tell you that as I went through, there's a couple of places where I said, I need some work. I can tell you that my first thought isn't always to give mercy. My first thought is typically anger and revenge. Fortunately, I've walked with the Lord long enough that uh, very quickly after that, he has a way of uh, bringing me back to the place where I, I give mercy before I don't. And, and that's a good thing. He wants that for us. He wants that for you. And it's exciting when you see his power begin to manifest in your life. You know, the crowd was great, but they went home, they lived their lives, they loved Jesus, but there wasn't a whole lot of empowerment in the sense that, that God was using them. And God wants to use you in a very significant way. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. We're out of time. And, uh, do your own personal evaluation. Jesus, as we wrap this up today, we realized it was in a time of great popularity that you clarified for your disciples so they didn't get the wrong idea. This is what it means to be a committed follower of yours, a disciple. And, and yet, Lord, you loved everyone equally, but you couldn't entrust everyone equally. Not everyone was yielded to your purpose to the same extent. Lord, today, our desire is to go further with you, to, to step out and be that disciple that you want us to be. And as we look at this, we realize we're, we're not there, and many times we find ourselves we won't be. But we want to go forward. We, we want to commit. We want to be who you want us to be so that you can do great things in our life.
So, Father, I pray that you reveal to us, you grow us, you carry us, you take us to the next step. I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.